when we're old, you know, genes get turned on that we don't want on, like pro-inflammatory genes or are the genes that protect us from cancer, tumor suppressor genes are turned on. And then we see, you know, smart genes like anti-inflammatory or detox genes get, get turned off. Right. We want to be able to sort of stay healthy for the longest haul possible. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, buddies, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today we are talking all about biological age reversal. Irrespective of your chronological age, I have Dr. Kara Fitzgerald on the show with me today. She received her doctorate of naturopathic medicine from the National College of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon. She has a postdoctorate position in nutritional biochemistry and laboratory science at Metametrics. Um, residency. Her residency was completed at Progressive Medical Center. She's a lead author and editor of the case studies in integrative and functional medicine. She's a contributing author for IFM's textbook of functional medicine uh, and much, much more. And we are here together today speaking about her new book, Younger You, where she studied and demonstrated that you can reverse your biological age by three years or more. Pretty exciting stuff. So what do we talk about? Well, of course, we talk about the epigenetic effect of aging that, uh, you know, we answer sort of the question, is it wear and tear and the hard knocks of life? Or is there a programmable sequence that leads to aging and death? We talk about uh, epigenetics, what that means, where it comes from. And then we really uh, double click on what are some of the things that we can do to help reverse slow down uh, the aging clock. And primarily we talk about this through food and nutrition, exercise and stress management. And we also get into a little bit of a sidebar of a conversation, unexpected, but really, uh, really happy that we went there in terms of the philosophical and potentially ethical consequences of trying to live forever. So we talk about some of the scientists in the um, in the space that are really trying to unlock that immortality key, if you will. And we talk about some of the ethical, uh, maybe philosophical objections that um, I might have to it. She, um, Dr. Kara, also expressed some concerns over it. And I'm not exactly sure still where I where I fall, but I think that you'll find the conversation that we have very insightful. 
And then lastly, we talk about methylation, of course, and cellular differentiation, resilience patterns and trauma patterns, and the wisdom that we accrue as we age. Where is the value in that? Overall, this was such a fabulous discussion. I think for any woman who is in her 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, I think that this is a really interesting conversation. Feeds into my goal for being the favorite grandmother because I want to be able to be at least biologically, chronologically, uh, maybe not so much, but biologically, I want to be young and agile and being able to take care of my grandbaby. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, I am thrilled that you are on The Better Show. Welcome. No, thanks for having me. It is great to be with you today, Stephanie. We are going to have such a productive and exciting conversation. Uh, We're going to be talking about your new book, Younger You, and of course, the landmark study uh, that is contained within that book, which shows how we can reduce our biological age with some uh, lifestyle interventions, not the chronological age, but the biological age with some lifestyle interventions, and we can actually age backwards. Um, Before we get to that, I do think... Uh, Because this is going to be a very, we'll say a very meaty, very juicy discussion about aging. And my audience, we were just talking in the pre-chat about how, uh, you know, the the type of woman that listens to this show, it's basically like the title of the show suggests, she's looking for information and tips and tricks and strategies on how to get better every day. And we're going to talk about this from a genetic and epigenetic and methylation lens, which can be heavy on the science. So I think it warrants a mini trip back in time uh, to biology, to high school bio. Um, And maybe we can start with just some basic definitions. What is genetics? What is epigenetics? I think that these terms, I think methylation maybe as well, requires, I think that we require some definition here before we kind of wade into the waters of this. Absolutely. And and if I go down in the rabbit hole too far, feel free to interrupt me, do whatever you need to do um, to just, you know, get me on, on, straight uh, talk. Um, So our genome is our, you know, it's our DNA and it can, it contains the blueprint in every single cell inside the nucleus um, rests our DNA, which has, it's, it's the blueprint for us. Like every, I mean, it's just mind boggling. If you think of it, every single cell in our body has this blueprint um, actually, except for red blood cells, which kick the nucleus out. But uh, it's this extraordinary phenomena. So there is our DNA. Um, and I want to say that in early 2000s, because this, this will leapfrog into the definition of epigenetics pretty nicely, we 
finally mapped out all of the genes. We have about 23,000 and that nut was finally cracked in like 2002, 2003. Uh, 23,000 genes we identified. Now we really anticipated that this uh, would be the Rosetta Stone for chronic disease. In other words, we would identify, you know, each gene that causes, you know, each condition. So a gene or a couple of genes that cause heart disease, a gene or a couple of genes that cause diabetes, dementia, cancer, et cetera, et cetera. We thought this would be the Rosetta Stone, our answer. And it wasn't. Probably it was a difficult pill to swallow for some scientists, but what it did was usher us into the era of epigenetics. So that is epi, you know, above genetics, the genes. So this is what regulates our genes, what turns our genes on and what turns our genes off. And this whole entire field, the study of what turns genes on and off is the field of epigenetics. And it turns out, so a lot of us were indoctrinated, of course we were indoctrinated into the idea that our genes are our destiny. The genetic package we were handed from mom and dad, grandpa and grand and grandma is how we're going to end up. So we're going to either we're going to live a, a beautiful long life or we're going to have, you know, diseases X, Y, and Z. It's written in our genes. There's nothing we can do about it. Well, let me tell you the extraordinary revolution and the promise of epigenetics is no. In fact, we're sitting in the driver's seat because the what our lifestyle choices. There's a little bit of a heritability component that we can talk about later, but by and large, it's our daily choices, what we're putting in our mouths, how we're living our lives, how connected we are, if we're moving our bodies, are we sleeping, et cetera, et cetera. These are the pieces that influence epigenetics. They influence what genes are on, what genes are off, and therefore influence whether we get these diseases. So the huge transition that we're in the middle of right now is taking ownership um, and really starting to understand epigenetics and study it. And, and, you know, it will be common language for us in the next few years. Everybody will likely be getting epigenetic studies in their, you know, in their annual physical and so forth. But let me just stop there and um, see if that's, if that explains it. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I think it's a very empowering message in the same way that, you know, it's not our fault that maybe we inherited poor genes, let's say, uh, but it is our responsibility to maximize their function. Um, just in terms of just in terms of history, uh, and just for a complete picture here, who coined and how did this term come about epigenetics? Who coined the term and why? Why is it used so widely today? Yeah. And so this goes back to, you know, the fact that the same DNA exists in every single cell in the body, but, you know, an eye cell, you know, a retinal cell is very different from a skin cell. So how is this? How is it that the phenotype is so different, even though the DNA is the same everywhere? Um, so it was Waddington, a scientist out of the UK in the 1940s, I think it was in the UK, coined the term because it was because the great epigenetic puzzler was how does a fertilized egg become a human? How does a fertilized egg turn into the massive different phenotype that is us, you know, that are all of our different cell types? How does such phenomenal change happen from, you know, this little microscopic fertilized egg? And again, all the DNA is the same, but how we regulate what's turned on and off, um, 
each, you know, each cell type has a different set of genes on and off so that we have a liver cell and, and we have eye cells and, you know, uh, cardiomyocytes and so on and teeth and hair and nails and on and on and on and on. It's just such an extraordinary phenomenon. All of that is regulated by epigenetics um, and primarily, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, an epigenetic mark called DNA methylation. Um, and so that was the original puzzler. He didn't know the answer in the 1940s, but he, you know, got enough to pose the question that it's not the genes that are creating this human. It's actually changes to how the gene is, the genes are turned on and off. I love that. So save for the sperm in a man and eggs in a woman, Ner- like let's say nerve cells in the eye or a hepatocyte, they all like a, a liver cell. They all have the same DNA. And the yeah. way, like we've we've had, uh, I had Dr. David Sinclair on the on the show when um, uh, Lifespan, his book Lifespan, uh, was released, mm-hmm. and we were talking about uh, this idea that if we didn't have cellular differentiation, we'd just be like a giant blob of cells. So like the nerve cell in the eye, let's say you have, and we'll talk about methylation uh, in in a little bit more depth, but it's almost like they get like a membership card. Like here is your car. You are a card carrying member now of the optic nerve, right? Yeah. And it's, it's as we age, we lose the membership card. We actually become more like that giant blob of cells, less differentiated over time. Correct. Well, you know, it's interesting. David Sinclair would say, yeah, he'd say, you're absolutely right. And I would say that you, that yes, that's correct. Except I would say that there's more predictability. So he would talk about entropy, like there's just kind of random damage that's happening. And I think it would be, it'd be interesting to ask. I I podcasted with him and I'd, I'd like to chat with him again, but, um, when you look at the epigenome, so when you look at you know the, those those DNA regulation marks of a young person versus an old person, they're almost equal and opposite, you know. And so there's almost this so this breakdown pattern seems planned, and there is some suggestion that in fact the aging journey is a is actually a planned sort of programmed phenomena. We have programmed obsolescence. And I think that there's a pretty substantial uh, sort of suggestion that that's, that, that, that that is. So it's not necessarily just like the hard knocks of life down. and like, yes. you know, it, no. and, but there is some sort of programmable sequence, just like, yes embryogenesis that you, that you talk yes. about, let's say, yes. or like yes. when, how we can ha- take a newborn, which has absolutely zero function to a two-year-old, which is like running and talking That's and jumping right. and skipping. That's right. In fact, it was Sinclair on my podcast who said that what we see, the changes that we see in aging are sort of as remarkable and grand as what we see in embryogenesis. And even all the life stages, like, well, maybe not, I, I think that there are some that are the volumes higher, as you, as you said, and there are some that are a little bit perhaps less active and maybe that's just my ignorance or the lack of, of science now, but so embryogenesis is massively epigenetically active and we can talk about specifics around that. It's extraordinary early infancy. Just like you said, we are aging at an accelerated rate and it's what we want. We want our kids to be, you know, they're just busting new neurons out and picking up new abilities. Like 
you know, within hours we can see changes. Like I, you know, watching my daughter, like if she got a, you know, she got a little cut on her hand as a baby or something, it's like, you can see the skin knitting itself together, you know, before my eyes. And then the next day it's pink and beautiful and gone. I mean, it's just so mind blowing that that accelerated aging is what's supposed to be happening. You can see developmental delays in kids and that's, you know, and that's a problem and, 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 and something that we can talk about. I mean, cuddling has been researched or lack of cuddling, lack I mean, so not just nutrition, but lack of connection and love will alter epigenetics in early infancy and slow down that accelerated rate of aging that's supposed to be happening and result in developmental delay. But we see it through the lifespan. But, you know, according to Sinclair, and it certainly seems my read on the literature that early, early is very, very active. And then as we get older uh, is also very active. But when you look at it broadly, what's happening when we're when we're old is like the equal and opposite to what's happening when we're young. So when we're old, you know, genes get turned on that we don't want on, like pro-inflammatory genes or are the genes that protect us from cancer, tumor suppressor genes are turned on. And then we see, you know, smart genes like anti-inflammatory or detox genes get get turned off. It's like it's pretty predictable and it's a raw deal. So even if we're a healthy older person, we're still experiencing some of these changes. One, that's one of the reasons why we looked in our research study in a healthy population. I mean, we want to be able to sort of stay healthy for the longest haul possible. Um, and, and I just, I, I think it's an important, uh, well, I think it's a really essential line of inquiry that we have to be undertaking. How do we really keep a robust health span and you know, concurrently improve lifespan? And what, so what's the tipping point? So when we have a newborn, we see this accelerated, we can say accelerated aging, and that's what you want. You don't want developmental delays. You don't want the child to be behind, let's say yeah. his or her peers. And then on the other end of like, if we oscillate all the way to the other end of the spectrum, then we sort of see this uh, predictable acceleration again, but in yeah. the wrong way. So where yeah. is it a breakdown. in yeah. a breakdown? Yeah. So uh -huh. where is it in the span? Or maybe this question hasn't been asked, or maybe you have some thoughts on it. Where is the tipping point where we want to, it's like, where's the sweet spot where yeah. we're not accelerating anywhere? We're just kind of Coasting well, is not the right word, but like, you know, there's a, there's a medium there. Well, you know, it's, that's a, I think that that's a really interesting question. I would say that we want to, so there, we're using the same tools to regulate gene expression, regardless of where we are on the, on the life continuum. And we want to therefore be thinking about eating for our genes. We want to be, we want to be engaged in, uh, gene whispering lifestyle practices and, 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 and dietary patterns that optimize expression really from preconception on. So I would argue that there's no time we don't want to be thinking about these tools. There's no time that we don't want to be introducing some of these habits and foods and so forth to our, you know, to our kids. But I would say that, you know, it's interesting. So when I wrote the book, I said that probably you know, we're, we're doing pretty well up until our four days. Um, that was my, uh, you know, that was my conclusion on my read in the literature. But if we really want to be healthy centenarians, if we really want to live, you know, to be 120, um, we, we, I, I would say that we want to be, we want to engage in the, this information as young as possible. And when you look at the literature, so there are, I talk about the Overkalic study 
um, or region in um, in the book. And this is a uh, the the, the overcalyx cohort are um, is a population that has been tracked very care- carefully with copious copious data since the 1800s, and they're a farming community, and they could see um, they could track health outcomes with uh, lots of food, you know, when they had a good harvest year, and uh, insufficient food when they had bad harvest years, and they could track health. They just track data so carefully. You can you can look at health outcomes across the generations, and you can see the influence on on uh, gene expression when prepubescent boys. So this is altering spermatogenesis. This is altering information on the sperm. This is altering epigenetics on the, on the DNA of the sperm. In prepubescent boys, in that first overcalyx generation, actually influenced health outcomes generations down. So too much food intake influenced generations down. And this is pre, pre-puberty. And we That's know- That's crazy. That's it crazy. It is crazy. But yeah. we also know that, I mean, and this- I know it is, it's crazy. And yet we also know that it happens. I mean, certainly in early infancy, we can see all sorts of, you know, if it, it, it's not surprising, you know, adverse childhood events will, you know, predictively alter genetic expression and, you know, increase risks of addiction and depression and mental health, but also inflammation and the chronic diseases of aging. So these early experiences can definitely alter epigenetics. Um, you know, towards the better or not. Um, so conversely, so going back to this overcalyx cohort, so prepubescent boys with too much food, so they had fabulous farming, and I guess maybe they had lots of bread and butter on the table or whatever, you know, just more caloric intake, um, had poorer health outcomes, but the less caloric intake actually had better. So they weren't starving because starving will set up a whole nother very negative phenomena. Um, so they, it was almost like they were forced you know, modest caloric restriction. So not quite starvation, but less food. And the prepubescent boys who consumed less food actually gave, you know, had had better health outcomes and subsequent generations also had better outcomes too. So that doesn't mean that you necessarily want to put your um, 11-year-old on a time-restricted eating structure. (laughs) Do not put Uh, your 11-year-old on a TRE. Yes, do not do that. that. But, But it just shows you the power of nutrition in regulating gene expression throughout the lifespan. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And you, in your book, you talk also about the, um, is it called the Dutch winter? It's when the, Mm -hmm. when the Germans blockaded. Yeah. 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 So that, so yeah. So Dutch hunger winter, that was, um, during world war two and they shut, they shut off access, um, to this very, to, 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 to the, this very specific region. And, um, they were starving. So they were subsisting on uh, little to no food. And women who were pregnant, not siblings, but women who were actually pregnant gave birth to um, babies who had increased risk for uh, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, I think schizophrenia, um, but like the uh, just the, comp- the the chronic disease of aging that we see. So there's there's this thrifty epigenome type. So they hung on to every calorie. So once they had food availability, their bodies were hardwired epigenetically to um, hang on to calories. Even in, and and not just that first generation of offspring. Actually, that would be generation one. So the the pregnant moms were generation zero, and so that was generation one. Subsequent generations, they tracked this pattern. Um, you know, over multiple generations. And it was real. it's related to DNA methylation and epigenetics. Yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, to your point, you know, you can have the overconsumption, the mild CR, the mild caloric restriction, and then you can go again to the other end of the spectrum with starvation. And yes. we can see with nutrients and like dysregulated nutrient sensing in the body, how that can lead to epigenetic changes, like the thrifty gene you were talking about in the, in the, in the Dutch famine. Yeah. Uh, Dutch let, me, yeah. let me tell you this. I think a lot of us in the United States you know, many of us uh, are, you know, relatively recent migrants to the U.S. I mean, my, my, I think it was my great grandparents who came from Poland. And I write about this in the book. A lot of us probably have some kind of a thrifty epigenome. I mean, if you yep. look in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, what's the percentage of, of individuals here that are at least overweight? You know, I mean, like over half the, I think 60%. Um, how many of us how many of us are on the metabolic continuum? It's like a river pushing us down towards diabetes, you know, and heart disease and cancer and dementia. That is the trajectory. Yes. Some of that is our sedentary lifestyle. Some of that is the standard American diet, of course. And we probably have some inherited patterns. We can actually look at native Americans. We can look at African Americans and see you know, similar disruption. So like Native Americans were, you know, sequestered into um, reservations and given like flour, just given, you know, horrible processed food and taken from what they were, um, you know, what they evolved consuming and just developed diabetes just, you know, in spades overnight. And so you see this, you know, you see this this phenomena elsewhere. But I, so I think all of us probably have some kind of a, or many of us, I shouldn't say all of us, but some have some sort of inheritance pattern. Um, and we need to really put our minds to fighting that river. And it's we in- can, and we can make those changes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say that because my, um, I have a part of my background is Mediterranean. So my father was born in Portugal uh, and migrated to Canada uh, when he was young. And the standards of beauty, because he grew up very, very poor, um, you know, so we also have like many of most of my cousins, my grandmother, certainly, and my aunts when they came here, of course, we have this abundance of food. There's no, like they, they weren't in, yes. you know, sort of mountainous or like, you know, t- you know, uh, villages where, you know, they didn't have the money to buy, you know, whatever. And they've all become, I would call it morbidly, uh, obese. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. This is kind of a side topic, but it just popped in my head as you were talking also what we consider, or I remember my grandmother, uh, when I was younger, she would cry when she would see me because she was like, you're too skinny. Like she was so afraid. And every European grandmother can like, you know, if anyone here has like, you know, Italian or Greek or something like she would like pinch my wrist here. And if she couldn't get anything, she was like, Oh my God, like you're starving, you're going to die. And so the standards of beauty for a Portuguese woman. And of course we know this sort of translates as well into the, into South America as well is like a larger woman is typically, you know, maybe she's richer. Like there's like this, like, Oh, she has a bigger butt. (laughs) She's better because she has food to feed it. Right. So just, you know, the beauty standard, it's also that I, I think that there's also some interconnectivity there as well, because with port, at least I can just speak for the, you know, sort of what I've observed in, in uh, growing up in a, a, a blended family, but you know, some Portuguese, um, uh, influence there is that the bigger your bottom is right. Like your the bigger your booty, it's always been, I mean, now of course we have the Kardashians and stuff, but like before it was, you know, growing up in, you know, in, in Canada, that was when I was younger, it was like Kate Moss, she was the reign supreme, but my culture where we come from is like, 
bigger is better. It means you have food. It means you're kind of like, yeah, you're going to survive, you know, basically, I mean, it does, it comes from it's yeah, there's, you know, there's a a, a rational background to that, even if it's gotten a little out of hand, my family also coming from Poland, like we, my, my, my grandparents had a delicatessen and, you know, there was just endless, endless pierogies and just like, and it just, just excess amounts of <laughs> or it's just like the, pro- it's like the prototypical, you know, yeah. Italian grandmother's like manja, like have yeah. some more, like yeah. have another thing, you know? Um, okay. So we've talked about one hallmark of aging, which is like dysregulated nutrients, right? Input. Um, can we talk about some of the other hallmarks that we see in aging? Um, I know that there's uh, like genomic instability, which we're going to talk about. Uh, there's telomeres. Uh, do you want to touch on some of the other hallmarks of aging? And then we can kind of move into the deep epigenome. Well, so I would just, I, so what I would say is, yeah, there's a, there's a handful of hallmark of hallmarks of aging. I have focused most of my attention on epigenetics. Um, so we know that there's, you know, there's, there's, a, you know, protein misfolding and of course, of course genomic instability, um, cellular senescence. Um, what else is there? You know, oxidant stress, inflammation, um, right. I, I'm not, I haven't, I, I haven't studied those as carefully as I have epigenetics. And the reason is, so epi, epigenetic disruption, epigenetic changes are one of the hallmarks of aging. But I'm convinced, as I said earlier, uh, well, I alluded to earlier when I said aging appears to be a program phenomena. If we're looking at root cause, I think that of the hallmarks, probably epigenetics is root cause, or it's the best thing we have to point to root cause. And these are, and the rest of the changes are downstream of the epigenetics. So the epigenetics, which is driving gene expression, um, drives drives these downstream changes. Right. So if we have this programmable in the same way we were talking about this embryogenesis, programmable development of the embryo leading to the, you know, the baby. And then now, you know, based on what you're saying, we have this programmable aging. What is happening to the epigenome? So let's talk a little bit first, maybe a definition of methylation. Um, And I'd like to maybe wade into the sirtuin waters as well. But let's talk (laughs) if if you want to go there. But I think let's talk about methylation um, and let's talk about how we start to what what are some of the uh, maybe drivers of this uh, this epigenetic uh, degradation? Um, well, so I mean, again, I mean, you could. So if you're if you want to think about it from sort of the standard, I think the standard current scientific thinking is that these changes are uh, wrought by you know the slings and arrows of life. So inflammation is turned on. Actually, there's 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 another idea that, um, you know, that 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 genes that we need on, you know, that promote growth and vitality and, and you know, and 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 the good things of youth, um, like mTOR. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mTOR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those those, those things that drive development in our youth, we sort of, we peak out, you know, you can sort of see a bell curve. Um, these, they drive forward for a while and they're beneficial mm-hmm. and then they actually become damaging to us. And so, uh, yeah, blood sugar control and, 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 and all of the, you know, increased risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, et cetera, all of these phenomena, these, these pro growth, 
um, changes become detrimental and drive the aging process. So that's another um, that's another uh, school of thought with uh, around aging. Actually, it's a pretty well accepted school. And then there's you know so there's so there's the influence of just the slings and arrows of life, toxin exposure, you know, sedentary lifestyle, poor food inputs, et cetera. Um, plus this, uh, this, the, 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 the favorable gene sort of turning on us. And then there's, so there's those two schools of thoughts. And then there's the school of thought that I'm really kind of encamped with, uh, that this phenomena is predictable and as predictable as you know, the changes that happen in embryogenesis and early infancy. And that is that there's some sort of drive towards planned obsolescence where uh, predictable genes are turned off, like beneficial genes are turned off, toxic genes are allowed to, to, to be turned on. And, you know, this causes us to sort of collectively break down by, you know, somewhere in our, between our seventies and, you know, maybe 120 max. So we're still, everybody's still teasing it out. I think um, well, I think we're still teasing it out. Like I don't, we, the, all of the, the answers aren't there yet. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. I think this is such an interesting conversation because it really has the possibility to like flare up the ego, right? Because it's like, I want to live forever. Like what person doesn't want to live forever? And then we sort of look at some of the conversations around aging in general. And I was saying this to you in the pre-chat. I think that we're really scared of death. As, as a society, you know, we ship off our elderly to homes because we don't want to see the changes. You know, funerals are, you know, they are what they are. Like it, it, people have a really hard time dealing with death. And I think that, um, you know, this kind of comes up as well with like consuming meats as well. Like people don't want animals to die and, and it can get very political and very inflammatory, uh, very quickly, but life, I mean, a part of life is death. I mean, that is really, you know, and, and I was saying to this to you, like, you know, and I was saying like the, t the type of person that listens to my pod podcast typically is like a 35 to kind of 55 year old woman, where we start to notice that things in our twenties don't work exactly the same way anymore when we are in our forties or in our fifties and beyond. And yeah. I think that there's a lot of resistance to that. Like, no, I want to be like, and I'll listen, I'm a vain woman. Like I want to know how I'm going to minimize sirtuin confusion with keeping my skin, let's say as plump as I, you know, as I can, I want the maximum amount of collagen and elastin. If we're just using like, you know, face, let's say, or skin, like I want the maximum amount that I can, uh, that I can, that I can achieve naturally. Right. Um, 
And I think that we want to preserve that, but there's this, um, there, there's a beauty in, you know, one of the things I say about, you know, I talk a lot about menstruation and like how menopause is almost like this energetic portal for us to actually say like, this is who I am now. I'm not like a servant to my children anymore or to my husband or to my career. And this is like, I'm going to live my life for me. And I think that this is almost like the second spring, you know, if you will, uh, of, of our lives. But I think that there needs to be some reclamation of and acceptance of death that we are, that we're not going to live until 140. And even if that were possible, is that really good for the planet at large for like, you know, a six, I don't know how many people are on the planet now, 6 billion, 7 billion, I don't 9 yeah. billion, something like that. Do you want 7 billion, 6 billion, 140 year olds? And then the wow. next population, like it, <laughs> it becomes this ethical, like then what, yeah. you know, how, we're already like the, you know, people are already saying that there's too many people on the planet. Not that I agree with that, but yeah. Right. Well, I mean, you said a lot there. Um, (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) So you said a lot. So I want to, I mean, scientists, some reputable scientists are definitely thinking we're, uh, you know, we could be nearing what they call escape velocity, you know, and that's immortality, which is pretty crazy. Um, But should we? So, well, I want to, I, so I want to say that not to overquote David Sinclair, but he said something interesting about, you know, if we can reverse biological age by a year, every year, you know, and then we're, then we're moving into this escape velocity space, um, you know, because we're starting to crack and, and I, I, I honestly think it's, it has to do with aging being a, a program phenomena, we're able to, uh, and it also being sourced to the epigenome, we are able to do some pretty radical age reversal in animal models and in in vitro models. So for instance, um, they caused aging in mice by scrambling the epigenome and then using Yamanaka factors, which are transcription factors that's very specifically influence DNA methylation and DNA and demethylation, so they're influencing epigenetic um, expression and activity, reversed that aging, that pro-aging phenomena. So they basically made mice get old, and then they turned them around and made them, made them get young by shifting what was happening in the epigenome. And what they found, this is, this is, these are postdocs out of Sinclair lab, Sinclair's lab, is that um, uh, the epigenome retains a youthful record. So it's there. It's like we have our our, our youthful epigenetic pattern it's with always, us all no the matter, time. No matter your age, no matter your chronological yeah, age. Le- yeah, yeah, that's what they that's what they demonstrated. So they showed that they did an animal study where they caused a again in mice they caused a uh, age related optic neuropathy and then reversed it. And, yeah, and, I read and that. Did, yeah, so that study was out in um, maybe early 2021. It was published. I think it was in preprint, maybe in 2020. But um, yeah, so they so they caused aging in eyes, and then they reversed that aging. So they made the neurons younger. They also restored sight. And then there's another study that was that was um, recently published, looking at skin cells, human skin cells in vitro. So they took they took skin cells. They were from a 53 uh, year old woman, I want to say, um, and turned them in, and reversed them in vitro by 30 years. So so we're like we're messing around with immortality big time. Um, 
And I want to say there is, you know, there is kind of one of the eccentric scientists of the uh, biogerontology space, of the longevity space, um, Aubrey de Grey, has been, often talks about the, uh, what does he say? I, I forget his quote directly, but it's the, it's the, um, it's like we're brainwashed to, to believe death, you know, to, we're brainwashed to believe that age and death are inevitable. Um, sort of like the opium of the masses or something that, yeah, of course we're going to get old and die. And so I think the, I think kind of the radical side of, of the longevity space believes that immortality is, 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 is possible and relatively soon, certainly leave living healthy into supercentenarian status, um, even more conservative biogerontologists are on that. So we're, we're, and, and let me just tell you this, like, you know, Altos Lab, Altos Lab in San Diego, it's also, I think, I think there's a, a lab set up in, in Cambridge and in, in the UK and over in Asia, billions in funding. I mean, it's thought that this is Jeff Bezos and he's and Peter Thiel, like these massive, massive billionaire guys are investing. And this is all about longevity. And they have, they've got the best scientists. So Yamanaka, I just mentioned Yamanaka, he's going to Altos. Morgan Levine, who who came from Steve Horvath's lab, including Steve Horvath. So like the the top, top, top scientists in the biogerontology space, those two are both around um, developing biological age clocks. Um, they're all going to Altos. Saudi Arabia just committed $1 billion a year to studying um, longevity. So it's, it's just, it's a huge deal. Um, and there's some aggressive, you know, rapamycin, which is a, you know, when used at, at, at in, in high doses is immunosuppressive, but in low doses, it, it appears to in, you know, many different animal models extend life. And, and I mean, so we're just hot on the trail of, I think, I think, changing the life experience here in a big, big way. And we need to be ready for that because it's happening. I mean, before we had airplanes, right? Who could imagine? Even before we had internet, you know, I remember logging on early. On. What, a, what, a, what an extraordinary, you know? Or when I Blackberry, mean, we're, we're, when Blackberry was like, you need a keyboard yeah. on your phone. And it's like. So we're at a very, yeah. we're at an extremely accelerated yeah. um trajectory here. And, and, and I want to say some of the more eccentric people, there's this guy, Harold, he's a scientist, catcher, Harold catcher, who's got, who, and worked with Steve Horvath and he developed this, what he calls Harold's elixir or E5. Um, and it's uh, components from uh, serum. So they're, 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 they're different, you know, plasma proteins um, that he's shown to extend life pretty extraordinarily, remarkably in an animal model. And, you know, biological age clocks corroborate that as do other tests like strength and, you know, oxidants, antioxidant status and, you know, inflammatory markers and so on and so forth. Um, but his, so he wrote a book recently and the first half of the book was talked about, he's talking about this like immortality and how we need to colonize Mars. So to answer your point, what we're going to do with these extra, you know, 10 billion humans, because nobody dies anymore. It's so great. It's so crazy to think about well, is, we're you know, we're all getting and, on like yeah. SpaceX. <laughs> yeah. yeah, get ready. So that's his solution. It's, I mean, we're living in crazy, we're, we're living in some pretty crazy times. I mean, think about CRISPR and gene editing software. Right. God, I was reading from, 
a laboratory that that produces some kind of biological age clock. I don't I don't know how re- reliable or, or reputable they are, but they're you know they're in there, and I get their newsletter. Um, you know, writing about using CRISPR to edit genes so that the sports playing field is level. So if my kid wants to be, you know, a um, I don't know, a, 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 a top of her game, you know, soccer star, we, she could she could edit her genes to make that possible. I mean, I just I just find those thoughts crazy. And and just to your point, to what you alluded to, it's like fraught with ethical considerations. It's just so fraught with what are the ethical considerations and to your other point. So that was one huge point. You know, what are we going to do with this? I mean, I don't know. It's just so scary and so grandiose to, you know, try to create superhumans and, you know, think that that's somehow fair and reasonable. I, I just, I don't even have a place to put that, you know, when I read that in that, in that e-newsletter, God. Um, but then the other point is too, like if, okay, so we have a youthful epigenetic pattern uh, and if and if we can restore that by you know taking a yamanaka some kind of a yamanaka cocktail and incidentally um, originally they would see cancer so yamanaka factors there's four of them and and he was able to take a somatic style cell so a fully evolved cell and 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 turn it back into a pluripotent stem cell so it's called an inducible pluripotent stem cell so he could turn he could just turn back the hands of times using this yamanaka cocktail back to stem cell status. But now other labs, including Sinclair's, are tweaking variations. So they're not using all of them and, and not turning back the hands of time, you know, to, to stem cell status, to the blob, as you, as you were talking about earlier, but just taking it back a little ways. Previous experiments resulted in cancer and resulted in, you know, all sorts of like crazy mischievous mischief going on as far as, you know, teratomas and, you know, just weird cellular collections and you know, it's definitely not ready for humans, but they're, they're certainly working on tweaking it. Um, so your question earlier was like, if we're messing around with this, if we're messing around with our epigenome and our genome, the hard one maturation. So as our bodies break down, right, we, you know, like I've got, you know, I've got gray hair, I've got more wrinkles, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm doing great in some ways. And I can see, I can see that I'm 55 in other ways. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, but what about the maturation that I've gone through? You know, my years living in a Zen center, my, my movement to, you know, peace with my family or, you know, just the, 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 the connectedness that I'm able to experience my calm, you know, the calm that you get as you grow up a little, you know, is that though I want to say that we know psychological experience is biologically embedded on the epigenome. That's what it's called. It's called biological embedding. Most of the science around that, like most of the research is on trauma. You know, there's sort of an obsession with studying the the, the patterns of trauma. Right. How do we study the patterns of wisdom, you know, and, 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 and maturation and connection and love. I mean, there's some suggestion towards that, but we, we need to be looking there. And to your point, if we revert ourselves back to you know, 20, am I going to be 20 again emotionally, which really wouldn't necessarily be beneficial to God me damn it. I was such an me, idiot right? when I was 20. Yeah, I don't totally. want to go back there. Yeah. I, I, I heard that this is actually being studied. I heard that this is actually being studied in an animal model. If you, you know, turn back the hands of time, you know, do you, do you lose some of that maturation? I don't know. 
I mean, and, 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 and that's a very different model than humans, but um, so there's much, yeah, much, yeah, you're right. Who the heck wants to go back to those years? You know, God, it's nice I'm, to be out. I would never go back to my twenties. Yeah. Like never go back. I'm so happy in terms of my life where I am now. And the, as you were saying, the experience, like that's, mm-hmm. you know, and it, I, I don't have an official opinion about it yet, but when I hear about like the Bezoses and the Saudi Arabian princes and whatever, it's yeah. like, is this just like real life Thanos from, you know, from, from Endgame? Like this like big villain who wants all the, you know, in the, if you're not a, if you're not a Marvel fan, I'm not making, my joke is just falling totally flat right now, but it's like, you know, he gets all the, he gets like this, you know, like a stone for like time and wisdom. And like, he becomes like immortal, like immortal in all these different ways. And it just seems like, it seems like, I don't know if this is exactly where I'm landing yet, but it seems really immature. It seems really egoic and it seems really like I want all power always. I never want anything else to come after me that's more important than me versus, you know, versus I'm going to do the best with the time that I have. So lifespan aside, I want to have the best health span that I can. I've talked about being like, I want to be the favorite grandmother. I want to be the grandmother that can play with my grandkids, get on the floor, lift them up. If my sons or their, you know, wives or partners, whatever, if they have to work, then I'm like, no problem. I got it. Like I'm strong. (laughs) I can take them to the park, you know? and And in order to do that, I need to be in order to be a strong, like, you know, kick-ass, let's say, if I want to be like a kick-ass 85-year-old, I can't be an average 45-year-old, right? right? So this is where we kind of merge this conversation into nutrition. I would like to, anyway, and mm-hmm, we can, we can, mm-hmm. we can play around with the Horvath clock. We didn't talk about yep. that yet, but we'll, we'll circle around it as well, but nutrition and exercise, because those are, yeah. if there's, if there's ways that we want to even just slow down, yes. the, let's just assume yeah. that we want to slow it yeah. down. Yeah. We know that the Horvath clock is sensitive to things like caloric restriction, which we've talked about, but also foods that we eat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And 100%. exercise. So l- talk a little bit about, well, yeah. let me, let me, yeah. So Go ahead. Finish your question. I'm sorry. No, I I was going to say, let's talk about (laughs) nutrition and exercise. It wasn't yet. (laughs) So I want to say just to tie this back to what we've just been talking about, the Amanaka factors, et cetera, and really change. And the fact that aging root cause appears to be housed in the, in the, in the epigenome and specifically perhaps DNA methylation and demethylation. So, so you were talking about these really kind of crazy you know, things happening in the world now and and visions for the future. But one of the extraordinary things is, as you're suggesting, diet and lifestyle heavily influences this same epigenome, these same DNA methylation uh, and demethylation patterns. So what we're doing every day has an influence here. And that's what our study showed. So we looked at, we, we looked at the, we looked at epigenetics and you know specifically DNA methylation using our diet and lifestyle intervention, and we saw that using very simple, very safe intervention, we were able to reverse biological age. So we slowed down the aging trajectory in our population by over three years and eight weeks, as compared to the control group, which is absolutely three years. Remarkable. Three years. I just want to highlight that yeah. just through food, through yeah, nutrition, just through food. Well, food and lifestyle. We wanted them and to lifestyle. exercise, get enough okay. sleep, and we wanted them to engage in meditation. So the take home of what we demonstrated is Yamanaka factors are not, rapamycin or not, you know, moving to outer space or not, you know, 
you, you need to be thinking about these things in our daily life. So there's much that we can do right now and that we should absolutely be doing right now, you know, while all the hubbub happens over there and, you know, and we, and we can talk about that or listen to, you know, read about it, et cetera, but we need to be doing it. And we know that we absolutely can influence profoundly, uh, epigenetic expression. And as we talked about with the Overcalix study and, 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 and Dutch hunger winter and so forth, we know that this can influence gen- generationally. So we did, I mean, amazingly, we, we were thinking about epigenetics and DNA methylation uh, in relation to cancer. It was somewhat serendipitous how we actually got to this because at the time of our study design in late 2017, early 2018, um, and actually starting our study, we were in our study 2018 through 2019, nobody demonstrated, there was no evidence for biological age reversal in humans at that time at all. Um, we knew that there was a biological age clock available so that we could look at whether we changed things, but I wasn't holding my breath. I was interested in, so my original investigation in biological in DNA methylation was w- with regard to cancer. Because cancer, really all the chronic diseases of aging, but especially cancer, well, at least there's a ton of research in cancer, hijacks epigenetic expression, hijacks it, takes it over from us, kicks us out of the driver's seat, turns genes on and off right in the tumor microenvironment for its own proliferation. And as a functional medicine clinician, my question was, could there be anything in functional medicine that we're doing wrong? You know, could we be supplying supplements, et cetera? Could we be sort of pushing this forward? Um, And my conclusion was the safest thing to do was a diet and lifestyle intervention, you know, leaning on on that primarily. And then if somebody needs supplements, layering in that, layering those in afterwards. But the foundational basics are mastered. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so- what ended up, so we got, we were given an unrestricted grant to study this from Metagenics. Um, and, and what I ended up learning over, the, over this journey was that, as I said before, aid, the changes in aging that happen are the changes that happen in cancer, are the changes that happen in heart disease. Yes. So, the, so, so, so we, by entering into the conversation over here, by considering cancer as our original question, we were in fact looking at the changes that happen in aging. And so then our, first question was, are we actually changing aging? We, we, we will come back and look to see if we've changed some of those genes and that, that are, are changed in cancer. And, 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 and the answer, I can say the preliminary answer is, is, is yes. Um, it looks like we've turned back on protective you know, anti-cancer genes and so forth. And I have to write that up and publish on it. But our first question was, if we're changing aging, if we're making people biologically younger, we should, by extension, be improving health span, improving lifespan, and reducing risk of all the chronic diseases of aging, because aging looks like those. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. Yeah. So we, it, we just, we happen to be, a, like, like, we happen to be preceding the wave, you know, almost just by serendipity in, in, in how we, and then the first study. So we were wrapping up our study. And then the first study that showed biological age reversal in humans was published with huge fanfare. Um, just as we were, you know, un, un, you know, unpacking our data findings. Um, and that was just a group of nine men. They had no control group. Uh, and they did a year long intervention of growth hormone, metformin, DHEA, I think vitamin D and zinc also. 
to growth hormone injections, like, you know, a long and fairly aggressive protocol, uh, but then they reversed biological age by I think two and a half years in that year long intervention. It'll be interesting to compare. I would be really interested to compare, you know, for example, we know that for men, we can reach sort of peak growth hormone after about, uh, call it an hour or so of exercise. Like you can really drive up growth hormone through resistance training, for example. It'll be interesting to compare to have a, maybe there's a, a second or ter- like there's a control and then we have the growth hormone intervention and maybe there's a tertiary group where it's like, can we just get them to lift some weights? And see what, and I I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek because yes, I'm all, I'm all for med, I'm all for medication when it's, when it's required, but it's in my, and I, I, I would think that you share this, you may or may not, but I think that it's then and only then after you've exhausted the mastery of, let's say, eating foods that are going to be really great methyl donors, that it's going to be resistance training. It's going to be stress management. And for all the women that are, uh, that are listening here, this is like stress management. Like I'm, I'm, I'm all for, I lift weights. Mm -hmm. I will lift weights until my last day. Mm -hmm. But if you don't take counsel on stress management, because it's silent in the same way that cancer is silent in the same way that epigenetic changes are silent, uh, you will age faster. Yeah, no doubt about it. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he, I want to just go back to the, the trim study. It was called the growth hormone injection study and say that his original interest was improving thymus gland. So he's, he's like all about the immune system. And then they layered on looking at biological aging and he found his, and, and they're studying it. So stay tuned there. There'll be more data on that whole yeah. protocol, Super interesting. but, but hundred percent. So we included, so when we designed our program, the diet is, and we'll talk about this in a minute, packed with what we call epinutrients. These are nutrients with evidence behind them for favorably influencing epigenetic expression. Packed. So really every forkful should be speaking to optimal gene expression. Um, But we had uh, a meditation. So we wanted people to practice the relaxation response, just a basic breathing exercise for 10 minutes twice per day. And to your point, the clock that we used in our study 25% 25% of it is regulated by glucocorticoids. They call, they're, they're called glucocorticoid response elements, and they, they will influence genetic expression through cortisol. So to me, that suggests that 25% of this, this particular clock we used is about the stress experience. That's more, that's more than other, any other um, variable that yep. we studied. So, I, so to me, stress is gasoline on the fire of aging. No doubt about it. And we can see you know, the diseases of, of, uh, the, the diseases of aging, the chronic diseases of aging, we can see, you know, the psychic experience, et cetera. We can see that stress just aggravates and pushes forward all of those. So it's, it's potently pro-aging. Conversely, when we bring it down a notch, you know, yoga, meditation, Tai Chi, et cetera, these are all anti-aging. These promote favorable gene expression. People who are practice meditators are biologically younger. Um, but for those of us who aren't going to retire to the monastery on the mountain, what's really cool and heartening is that just one meditation experience, and we know if you're a, a, a new meditator, you've got this crazy monkey mind, but even just starting the experience can change gene expression towards the better. However, if you keep doing it, you know, it's just going to move 
you know, like a wildfire through the rest of your genes and, and influence genetic expression, you know, body wide. So it's an extraordinary phenomena and will get the lasting influence if we continue to get engaged in the practice. So, so one, one, one meditative event can have favorable expression, but we can really turn biological age around if we commit to it. It's, it's extraordinary and it's very cool. And the same thing with exercise. And let me tell you another, it's same thing. So one exercise event can have favorable changes. Practiced exercisers uh, are biologically younger. There is some, like if you, if you want to go really over the top, there's some evidence that excess exercise, and this makes sense, can be pro-aging. For sure. Right? Yeah. 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 We all, we all know, like I used to be a competitive cyclist and I would get sick at the end of every season. You know, I always had sinusitis or something like that because I just burned the candle, pushed it for really hard, you know, and my immune system was, was suppressed after that and I would get sick. Um, but in general, exercising is one of the most potent anti-aging elixirs that we have. And, and what's so badass to me is that we can, if we're preconception, we can hand some of that information down to our offspring. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I can, love that. You can, you can hand that six pack ab down to your, such your kid, <laughs> but you can at least, you can hand down some of that information. And conversely, if you're not engaging in it, you know, that information is going to go too. Right. Yeah. So it, it sort of um, highlights the the saying, you got it from your mama, like it yeah. gives, you, gives you more bragging rights. Like you got that muscle from your mama. Um, let, let's talk briefly about um, methylation uh, and the Horvath clock. I know we've been talking about repairing the epigenome and nutrient. And then I want to get into like the nutrient rich um, foods that you looked yeah. at. And then yeah, um, and what is happening? I mean, methylation is sort of this like sort of weird term, I think to people, it's like, what's happening? There's a methyl group, what, you know, but it's involved in so many things. So describe what methylation is and how that, and how that contributes to cellular differentiation. So, um, so a methyl group is a carbon and three hydrogens go back to basic chemistry and, 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 you know, just visualize a carbon and and three little hydrogen groups on it. Um, we make this, so we make the, the compound that houses that methyl group um, in something called the methylation cycle. And this, and we, we're familiar with the methylation cycle, even if we're not, because we know B12 and folate are good for us, right? And so that's feeding that methylation cycle, which produces a compound called S-adenosylmethionine. This, this compound, SAM for short, has a carbon and three hydrogens on it. And then it goes, it's, SAM is used in methyltransferase reactions. And there are hundreds of methyltransferase enzymes in the body. Um, we do all sorts of, so just think of that methylation is happening, you know, in the background, in really every cell of the body all of the time. It's very fundamental. It helps us clear out uh, and metabolize drugs, clear out toxins, metabolize hormones, you know, make neurotransmitters, um, just all sorts of, of of activity uh, is reliant on these methyltransferase enzymes and this S-adenosylmethionine. So this is essential foundational work. When we look at epigenetics, we can see that there's a DNA methyltransferase, um, and there's also methyltransferases in the in mitochondrial where DNA. Uh, and so we're using methylation in gene regulation all the time. There's interestingly a set of enzymes called 1011 translocation enzymes that demethylate. So my area has been focused. I've been, my attention has been on DNA methylation, DNA, the DNA, the family of DNA methyltransferases, um, as well as these 1011 translocation enzymes. Uh, So we've got, we, we want to have the methylation cycle 
whirring. We need that functioning. And as we age, it's less efficient. So we want to be eating a methyl donor rich diet. That's essential. If you look at the nutrient breakdown of the Younger You program, you'll see that it's packed, packed, packed with uh, sources of folate, uh, sources of B12, other nutrients that work in the methylation cycle include choline, uh, betaine, uh, even DHA from fish can help regulate methylation cycle. And there's all sorts of minerals like zinc and magnesium and potassium that are needed for a, a functioning methylation cycle. So fundamental to healthy gene expression, healthy DNA methylation is a nice functional methylation cycle. But interesting is, you know, how is methylation happening at the level of the, of the DNA? Like if we just if we just push methylation forward, if we just take in a whole bunch of folate and B12, et cetera, et cetera, you know, are we directing where the methylation is happening? And that is where it, it gets interesting to me. Um, so if we, if, if just, so, so methylation decreases as we age. And one could say, well, let me hop on a good B complex. Let me take extra B12. Let me take extra folate, et cetera. And a lot of us have done that. Uh, but the outcome there hasn't been uniformly beneficial. There's some suggestion in the literature that disordered methylation could happen. So as we age, there's net less methylation. But as I've been saying, there's when you drill down and look at DNA methylation, you can see there's extra methylation happening in some genes and less happening on some, on, on others. So there's disordered methylation. There's hypermethylation of, again, our tumor suppressor genes, the genes that protect us from cancer. Um, so if we're just taking B12 and folate, could we inhibit our tumor suppressor genes, uh, 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 genes and then actually drive cancer forward? And I talk about this in the book quite a bit. And there's some suggestion that, in fact, this could be true. So we don't want to just willy-nilly push methylation forward. We need to do it with some sophistication. Uh, our discovery, our sort of big aha discovery was that there are a ton of nutrients, you know, also epinutrients that we call methylation adaptogens. Actually, a friend of mine, Michael, Michael Stone coined this term. He's, we're both on faculty at IFM and I was talking to him about this discovery and he's like, wow, it sounds like methylation adaptogens. So these are compounds these are poly, mostly polyphenol compounds that seem to direct where methylation is happening on the genome towards a more favorable uh, profile. These are compounds that you're already eating. All of us are eating some of these methylation adaptogens, uh, curcumin in turmeric or um, EGCG in green tea, uh, luteolin, uh, lycopene in tomatoes, um, quercetin. Uh, what else? Resveratrol. So going back to some of these guys being sirtuin uh, activators or supports. Sulforaphane in cruciferous veggies. methane again, also in cruciferous veggies. And on and on and on and on. There are so many of these polyphenol compounds that are um, epinutrients of extraordinary proportions. So they have nothing to do with the methylation cycle. But what they do is appear to influence the DNA methylation transferase enzymes, in some cases inhibiting them uh, from, from uh, shutting off a gene or supporting a gene being turned back on. And it's amazing. So in the literature, mostly the research is in animals and in vitro, but we see, so going back to these tumor suppressor genes that get shut down as we age, we see that these beautiful compounds, cur curcumin, resveratrol, um, EGCG, turn on 
previously suppressed tumor suppressor genes. So they protect us from cancer right here at the level of DNA methylation in the, in the uh, methylome. It's extraordinary. And I want to say that actually exercise does the same thing. Exercise is like a vegetable. <laughs> For those of you who are like resistant a green leafy to vegetable with a side really of blueberries. Is. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it really is. It has the power to influence these turn turn back on gene expression, favorable gene expression patterns. And I'm sure that that's one of the reasons it's an anti-aging elixir. Um, my suspicion with these beautiful polyphenols that we know are, are, are anti-cancer, are anti-inflammatory, are, are antioxidant, are, et cetera, probably the mechanism, the mechanism exerting these downstream effects has to do with influencing gene expression. I want to, and one final thing I want to say is in our study, what we saw in our participants was that we saw this, this hypothesis that we're throwing out. We didn't increase methylation on the methylome. So we didn't, when we, we looked at almost a million methylation sites on the gene, on the genes, and um, we didn't net increase it, but rather we moved it around to a more healthy and youthful pattern using a methyl donor rich diet, plus these adaptogens and then the lifestyle pieces. So you mentioned sulforaphanes, you mentioned EGCG and green tea. I'm assuming berries are part of this polyphenol Huge. group as well. Yeah. 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 There are, in fact, in the book, um, in the, there's a nutrient appendix that is the first of its kind, I'm sure, that's full of all of the epinutrients. It's 30 pages long. And for people who are a little skittish about try, starting a diet, I, I tell them, look, <laughs> get the book or borrow somebody else's, go to the nutrient appendix. And you'll see that you're already eating, you know, dozens of these foods and you can turn the volume up on them a little bit and continue to. And then, you know, when you're ready, you can dive into the full program. But yeah, most po recognized polyphenols are gene whispers. They're, they're epinutrients. That's great. And I think... Um... It sort of lends as well because you, you see, see a lot of times, at least now anyway, I see this and I get asked this a lot because I have a diet uh, which is very green rich, like very sulfur, vein and dim, you know, as you're mentioning, like a lot of green leafy vegetables, lots of peppers, lots of things like lycopene and the tomatoes and such. But you do see now that you should avoid plants because they're toxins. Uh, you do see like the oxalate, uh, you know, uh, production. Yeah, I think it's a I got to be honest with you. I agree. I, just, I think that's absolutely, I just, I mean, I just. Yeah, I agree. It's just, well, and we have blue zone data. So we already know we can go to populations where, you know, there's a high percentage living, you know, these beautiful, robust, healthy lives. And you can look at what they're eating and it flies in the face of some of the fad diets here. Um, which, yeah, there's oxalate anxiety. And I think that's just absolutely oxalate anxiety. I love that. <laughs> there's a lot of oxalate anxiety. You get pinged in the younger you. What about the oxalate? Yeah, the yeah. And, you I know, for some people, for some people, like maybe five to a minority. Like, yeah, yeah, like five to maybe 10, maybe I'm pushing it at 10% yeah. of the population. Yeah. There is a sensitivity to it. For most people, all you have to do is steam your spinach and, like, your problem, we have no more problem. Well, we no more and. Problem. What's the source of the issue? I mean, it is, we, we are in a time of really tough guts, you know, and imbalanced microbiomes and yeah. likely that's the foundational driver. And so we should all be able to handle oxalates. Maybe we've got, you know, some, a genetic predisposition towards, uh, ox stone form or stone formation, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and we want to be a little bit mindful because of that. But, um, you know, by and large, most of us should be able to resolve um, 
any oxalate sensitivity and it's just, it's misdiagnosed. So somebody has another food sensitivity or they've got some SIBO um, and it gets pinned on oxalates erroneously. The idea that beans, now in our intensive, we don't have legumes on the eight week intensive, but we definitely want people to migrate into eating legumes and beans and so forth once, once they finish that eight week intensive. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think we need to be sweating the anti-nutrients if we, if we soak our beans. And, you know, again, when we look at, when we look at those living well and long today in our toxic world, they're eating a boatload of legumes and they're eating, you know, high oxalates and so on and so forth. They're actually yeah. eating bread and, you know, things that, that a lot of us stay away from. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that there's, you know, I think that there, and I'm really speaking more about kind of like the carnivore sort of movement here, because I think that there's, I think there's a time and a place for, as you were saying, like if someone has SIBO or they have, you know, yeah. hyper intestine, you know, um, uh, hyper intestinal, uh, permeability of uh, what I'm, what, what am I trying to say? Hyper permeability of the intestines, what I'm trying to say. Um, I think there can be a therapeutic intervention where we, let's say, remove, uh, let's say vegetables that may be causing, you know, an inflammation that may be causing adding like the gas or the kerosene to the fire, let's say. But I do think that they do have to be in there long term. Like you, there's too much data. There's too much literature yeah, totally. that talks about all cause mortality reduction with consumption of the foods that we're, that we're mentioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt about it. And there may be, there, there may be some preliminary cleanup that needs to happen without yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. One of the thing I wanted to end, um, or kind of start wrapping up our conversation because one of the things I find so interesting about you in doing this work is that you became a mother, first time mother when you were 50. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel like this is so interesting and like, I, I want to make sure that we touch on this because when, when you have a, a young child, uh, when you're, let's say 25 or 30, I was 33 when I had my first baby, there's a certain, like you just naturally have a little bit more energy, like just because, you know, the methylation is maybe a bit more efficient. We have just more ATP production, et cetera. Uh, mitochondrial, uh, dysfunction is maybe not as, uh, big as, 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 um, as someone who might be older. And I think that this work, I would love for you to speak to your experience as a first time mother in her fifties, knowing what you know about, um, methylation and how foods can really turn back the clock. And maybe if there's, um, and and I, I'm I'm not, I'm not sure if it was an adoption or if it was a biological, uh, I mean, you might not want to speak about either of those, which is fine, but I would just love for you to speak to your experience as a woman in her fifties, being a mom for the first Mm -hmm. time and Mm -hmm. how this information has directed your behavior. Yeah. Okay. So I, uh, she's adopted, she's adopted. And, um, what can I say about it? Um, I live what I, what I preach. I mean, I absolutely do. And so my biological age at my, at last check, I get it maybe every six months, which one meet I'm just kind of particularly interested in it, um, is 41. Uh, I don't. So I'm, so I'm chronologically 55 and biologic, my current biological age is 41. And hopefully it's going to stick around, around there. We'll see. I'm due. I'm, I'll test soon. Um, I feel great. So I don't have. I don't have any limitations with my, my daughter at all. I think, um, and I just, you know, and I pay attention. I mean, I just pay attention to the science. I am interested. I want to, I need, you know, I need to be a healthy centenarian. I want to be, uh, cause I want to be here for my, 
for my kiddo in the best possible way. So all of this, this whole area is extremely personal and important to me. Um, what else can I say about it? There was another little tidbit I wanted to say. Okay. So, you know, going back to our conversation around wisdom, I am different as a, as a, as a, as a 50 year old, you know, first time mom at 50 and now I'm 55. Yeah. I do have, um, I, I approach parenting differently than I would have when I was younger. So, um, I have a nanny, I have more, I have more assistance. Like I value I, I mean, I see what my mom did and my sister and my sister-in-law, um, who was the primary, you know, she was the stay, stay-at-home mom, my, my brother's wife. They were with their, their kids all the time. And I, I'm with my daughter a lot. For, for a business owner and a full-time, you know, worker bee that I am, I have a lot of time with my kid. But I also appreciate getting my time into exercise. I, uh, my self-care is a priority now in my 50s in a way that it wasn't if I had had her younger. So that's, that's important. And I also have way more patience now you know, than I did when I was a kid, when I was younger. It's that wisdom. It's that wisdom. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, would be, I would have been a very different parent. I mean, I think I would have been, you know, I would be, I would probably be needing to do some cleanup now with my kid <laughs> based on how I was when I was that age. So, so there's some benefits, I think, to being an older mom, you know, both for me and how I engage in my own self-care, which I wouldn't have when I, when I was younger, I just didn't, I wasn't aware of it enough, um, you know, to just, you know, being, being gentler and just, I don't know, being, I think just a little, I don't, yeah, having a little bit more wisdom you know, certainly than my younger self. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's some of the epigenetic transfer that we don't want to lose. We yeah. want to keep that wisdom because your yeah. do your daughter now is benefiting yeah. from that wisdom that you've accrued over time. Yeah. The person that you were, let's say when you were chronologically 41 is different now than the woman that's 55. So you I know, think yeah, hundred percent. And the other piece that's kind of cool too, because she is adopted and this was this one, actually, I was talking to my agent. This was a piece of our, our book, my book proposal, um, kind of when she, it just sort of blew her mind what we were doing, but um, our epigenome. So we don't share, I don't share my genome with my, with my adopted daughter, but our epigenomes, your environment converges gene expression. And so we, we have a shared epigenome. There's just no doubt about it. And, and, and when I was telling my agent this story, I had just started reading about this. This is the idea of biological embedding and, and you know, and, 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 and the environment and, and, you know, interconnection and connectivity and relationship and all of that, how that can influence epigenetic expression. Of course, my diet is similar to hers and so forth. There's other variables in there. But I was telling my agent and it was a little bit of a risk. I was like, this is a little bit out there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell her. And there was silence on the other end of the line. So I was pitching her our proposal for the book and there was total silence. And I remember thinking, uh, I was embarrassed. I was like, God, I shouldn't have said that. This was just too out there. And she finally said that she was crying. She was in tears because she's got an adopted daughter and her, this would be so meaningful, this information. Her adopted daughter is from, is from China and, and um, she's not, you know, my agent isn't, isn't Chinese. Uh, she's of European descent. And this was just such a beautiful and powerful thing of how they're kinetic, connected genetically. It's, it's, it's different, but the connection is there nonetheless. And yeah, it was really kind of a, kind of a beautiful moment for us. 
I'm so happy. I just love hearing that because I think that, you know, we often have, we often think about, and I'm like kind of getting a little teary right now. Like we often think about motherhood as this very limited, you know, you do it at this time and it looks like this. And I, I just love everything you're saying. So thank you very much for sharing that and for your work as well. Um, what is, if people want, are you still, are you doing ongoing studies right now? Is there another study that you're, uh, that you're working on or this is, this is it for now? Yeah. So no, we're actually, people can find, people should come to youngeryouprogram.com for the details. And, um, we are going to be building out groups. There's lots of stuff happening. Uh, if for anyone who wants to get involved and do this, they want to do like if they want to do a real concierge version and have access to the DNA testing we used in our study, et cetera, they can. But we do have approval to continue to study within an app. We've created an app called 3YY, three years younger, and you can um, your data can be used for us to continue to publish on. And in fact, I will say that we have a little prelim data of a group of seven women, seven middle-aged women who just rocked it. They did very well. So I'll probably publish them as a case series um, as soon as I get a, get a minute to write it up. But we're seeing really, we're just continuing to see really cool stuff. This has been such a pleasure talking to you, uh, Doc. I'm so happy you came on here. I know this is going to be so useful for so many people uh, listening to this. And I think that we've touched on a lot of, you know, we've, we've kind of talked a lot of mechanisms and mechanistic, but I think there's been a beautiful blend of like philosophical and future pacing and, you know, that, you know, the kind of back to the original piece that we talked about, like what an empowering message that you can be three years younger with how you move and what you eat and some breath work or meditation or some type of stress management. I think that is so exciting, so exciting. And I can't wait to see what else uh, you bring to the table. So Dr. Fitzgerald, thank you so much for your time today. I can't wait. Thanks for having me. It's been a, it's just been a pleasure to be with you today, Doc Stephanie. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 